This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Royal Boons. Famous Architect Dungeons. The Tunda. And the Popish Plot. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. The gaming hut is trimmed in ermine and purple as it often is and there's guys with halberds standing around oh the miniatures with halberds but still you know it's the thought that counts because we're in a very regal issue of the gaming hut instance edition whatever incarnation there's ermine and, and purple that's all i know ermine and purple is what we that let's not get tangled up taxonomically that's literally a different hut oh the, the taxonomic entanglement hut no no not that that's our third worst hut but in the best things category beloved patreon backer urchin prince has a question for us which is every f20 game i've played has an authority figure king magician bar owner offering the players an unspecified boon as a reward for their service. As you've guessed, every F20 game then grinds to a halt as players rack their brains for the perfect ask. Isn't there a better way? That's such a good phrase. Good job, (laughs) Urchin Prince. Also, Urchin Prince continues, what kind of things did real kings hand out as rewards? I'm going to start with the second question and say... Uh In order to have a better way, don't give out the things that real kings gave out as no. rewards. Because 
what they would give out is authority. Mm-hmm. They would give out land, uh, which is to say authority. Mm-hmm. They would let you uh, marry into the family, perhaps, which is to say authority. And you know what happens with authority, Ken? Responsibility. Yep. And although this, of course, goes back to like AD&D, first edition, where the idea was that if you adventured long enough, you spent enough time, you know, killing dragons and Katobalpusses and black puddings that eventually you would be given a whole feudal estate to manage. And then it's like, I didn't want to manage a feudal estate. I'd <laughs> yeah. like to keep, there's some storm giants that I want to kill. That's sorry. Like, sorry, son, you're 10th level. Time to retire to your castle and let a younger elf take your gig. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, what? Suddenly we're, yeah. is this traveler? This isn't traveler, is it? <laughs> every, every now and again, you, the kings would change it up and you'd get like the right to collect tariffs on imported wine. Or the right to uh, rake off the tin mines. Sometimes that would happen. But again, that also usually came with some sort of responsibility because it's not like the king went and collected those tariffs and gave you your chunk. It's like, no, your job is now to collect the tariffs on wine. You get to keep a lot of them. But if the king is, hey, weren't we supposed to get wine tariff money and you haven't been collecting it right? Well, now you're in the soup. So, which is like the ultimate medieval example, the or I guess F twenty example of the Peter principle, where you've failed upwards into being a tax and customs official. Mm. Now I guess Anglo Saxon kings and and Viking kings would just rip a big golden torque off their neck and throw it at you, and that would be the reward. So because right. they were called ring givers, that was what you were if you were a a badass Germanic king. You were a ring giver. But at some point, it's like, well, okay, that was fifty gold pieces worth of neck ring. Good for you. <laughs> Moving right. on. Well, but but that in the real economy, of course, you know, a 50 gold pieces worth of neck ring was a, a big gosh darn deal. Yeah. And you couldn't melt it down and spend it because you were given that by the king and you had to wear it to show how boss you were, which is oh, to no, say. This is just another batch of authority. That's not, it's not looted at all. Back to responsibility again. Dang it. Yeah. It's as though kings were not really interested in setting up people with any sort of economic or political independence. That's wild, Robin. Oh, yeah. It's, it's trickle-up economics, but that's <laughs> never been seen before or since. No, no. Kings kings always had uh, nothing but freedom in mind, as we learn from yes. Your nothing. freedom to collect wine taxes. Exactly. And pass on upwards of 30% to the king. Right. So the, the answer is don't do any of that. Don't do any of that. <laughs> and the, the next answer is what's the currency of your game? And the currency of your game is probably, possibly currency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Don't, I mean, don't overlook big bag of gold. Yeah. Everyone loves it. That's, that's why they call it big bag of gold. Yeah. And so that gives you also the option of, it dispenses with the F20 thing of, you know, every monster in every situation just happens to be sitting on a vast trove of, of stuff. So you can create a monster encounter where it doesn't make any darn sense for there to be also a giant loot trove, and then you just go and visit the king at the end, and John Williams' music plays on the score, and then you get your gold. So yeah. in a game where gold pieces matter, that's uh, one thing. I think if you have a group that doesn't enjoy shopping, you could have, well, here's you know, here's the plate mail you've been coveting, and, and here you go. And, and uh, you know, or just, uh, I think in a lot of F20 games, uh, what the players would love is, Here's the armor. Pick yourself six things each mm-hmm. and then have a big long list of stuff to, you know, hand out the list of all the different things and have them comb through it. And and I and which I guess is a real ultimate mega answer to this question, which is don't just say, well, what would you like? But rather give 
the uh, players a choice, right? So give them a shopping list of, of goodies that they can uh, take or, uh, and, uh, and of course that can also include non-tangible power-ups, like, you know, the wizard will train you and give you this new spell that he's just invented called fireball. It's, it's all the rage mm-hmm. or, you know, here's a Pegasus. That's always good. Give him a Pegasus. Yeah. That's, that's the sort of um, F20 version of the white elephant. It's like, now you got to feed the Pegasus and he does not just eat hay. Yeah. And it turns out that, but the Pegasus is really good can at collecting uh, wine tariffs. Well, what he's really good at is kicking holes in wine shipments so that you have to then pay the difference. <laughs> well, that's, Six of one, half a dozen the other. So the real lesson is talk to your Pegasus and see what he feels about uh, taxation. Right. The, I mean, there's a the gifts that get you into further trouble is actually kind of classic F20, right? It's like, yes. you know, oh, yes, you can have this wonderful sword that happens to have someone's demonic uncle bound into it. But, you know, you're, you'll figure that out. That's yes. a solved problem. Or even you do get land, you get a castle, but it's the castle right on the border of the Orc Empire. And yeah, good luck with that. Now it's your job. Yeah, that's the old. Wait, this isn't a boon. This yeah. is the next week's adventure. This is a hook. noob. It's boon backward. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, and it, uh, kings ag- absolutely give out scenario hooks in F20, and I think that's one of their greatest joys and jobs. And I feel like the sort of sweet spot of the king giving you a boon is you've thought of something that the player really wants that plate mail you've had your eye on or knowledge of fireball, but by getting it, that then saddles you with the next story hook. So yes, you've got the plate mail. And the only problem is that, you know, you now have to write in the King's tournament and that sets up the the cool tournament episode, or you've got fireball. And, you know, the only thing you'll need before you activate that spell is you need the tonsils of a fire dragon. And then you'll be able to cast fireball all day. Yes. At, at the end of the lesson, the sorcerer says tonsils not included. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. This is your practice tonsil. Now that's going to vaporize after your first casting. So good luck. And then, so I, I think that's kind of ideally because the players get a present and they enjoy it, and they actually did want armor, fireball, whatever, but that organically sets up the next mission as opposed to they have to go back to the king and say, do you have any more missions for us? Or they go back to the tavern and hope to find another old man with a map. This time, you sort of are driven forward into the story. Another way to do it is you are allowed to go and, and pick out, you know, you know any potion from the top shelf, and you pick a potion, and the necromancer who uh, works for the king is mad because he wanted that potion, and now yeah. you've got an enemy, and that's good fun, right? Right, and you and you can also uh, sort of spice that up uh, for F twenty heads of uh, like you can have one potion of your choice or two random potions mm. from my random potion bag. Which one do you want? And that's uh, I think an interesting fun thing you know add a little bit of a gambling aspect to it right yeah and uh kings historically did love a good gamble you know the the roman emperors would play dice all the time mess around i I forget if it was uh caligula or claudius that used to grant someone an estate and then immediately try and win it back from them at backgammon uh, (laughs) just to be a jerk yeah the trick was to back out of the room very quickly say oh an estate great i'm gonna go make a call I need to, yeah, go where there's telephones. So Yeah, before the backgammon attendant shows up. Exactly. A- right. Another thing that kings in particular do is they mete out justice. So you could have someone that you want justice meted out against. So you don't mm-hmm. want the king, you know, a- arresting the big bad of your whole 
campaign and just putting him in jail so that they no longer have a big bad to go fight. But there may be secondary annoying villains that you've set up just to be secondary and annoying that the king can then say, well, very well, I will exile Sir Braniff to the Isle of Woe. And uh, you get a great scene where Sir Braniff is being dragged off, kicking and screaming and complaining and, uh, and that can be great fun. Conversely, you can have someone sprung from prison. That's a good boon. And, and again, that's somewhat historically real. You would often get a, a chance to get a pardon from the king. Or, you know, kings, of course, can provide information. So it may be that the king is not your regular patron, but you're trying to bust up a secret society or whatever, and you know that the king... And this is probably... A lot of these, in fact, probably work best, rather than at the end, when the uh, players are tired and bleary and, you know putting their rule books back in their knapsacks to so then ask, so what do you want out of this? The other thing about boons is reveal the boon at the top, you mm-hmm. know, have the king say, well, I can tell you all about the secret society and exactly, you know, who the Lord in the silver mask is. Uh, I just need you to go and uh, deal with this uh, centipede uh, person problem. Uh, the centipede people are invading my wine house. Yeah. Uh, deal with them. And I'll tell you everything you need to know about the, the uh, the Lord in the silver mask. Yeah, you can uh, get the you know the promise of the boon or the deal up front. That's a another way to do it. And it is if you have established yourself as closer to a peer of the boon giver, I think that's more likely. Kings did not do a lot of haggling historically, and a figure of uh, terrifying fantasy authority probably shouldn't be you know cheese pairing back and forth. But absolutely, if it's the tavern guy or the old magician or even the Baron, you're probably in a position to haggle and say, well, yeah, I'll go deal with your centipede man problem, but I want uh, Sir Braniff exiled. And uh, he says, yeah, you bring you bring me a, you know, a, a bushel and a half of centipede feet and off off you go, Sir Braniff. He'll, he'll be uh, gone tomorrow. Right. Although with centipede feet, they do check to make sure that they come from different centipede men. Yeah, That's- no, they, they've got a guy for that. And, yeah. and he was the guy who did a boon for the king earlier, and he got the sweet sinecure of centipede foot counter. Yeah, which is a, a good, sweet gig. It's a good gig as long as you don't mind touching centipede feet. Right. Well, you get used to that three or four years in. Right. At any rate, that puts us in mind of, like, you could also have a whole campaign structured around moving up patrons, right? So the first first level guy, your patron's a bar owner. The bar owner gives you a reward and introduces you to the sheriff. The sheriff then sends you on a mission, and, and when you're successful with that, he introduces you to the local lord, and then the local lord gives you a mission and introduces you to the hierarch, who introduces you to the king. And you go all the way up to the uh, the, the king god emperor, mm-hmm. and uh, at the end, uh, you know, you've made your way through the entire uh, social structure of people who give missions in your F20 world. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, missioning upward. You, you just get an ever more uh, impressive voice on the tape. Getting all the way up to like an A-list British actor. Yes, and 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 once Rafe finds is showing up to give you your final mission, it's time for us to show up in another hut. So let's go there, Ken. Let's do it. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. <laughs> 
It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers. The Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The cornices and the columns... And also the, the squeak, squeak, squeak of the uh, plotters as the uh, plans get printed out tell us that we're once again in the oh-so-fine, oh-so-structured, oh-so-beautifully-constructed confines of the Architecture Hut. And this time around, at the behest of estimable patron backer Tim Vert, we're going to answer this question. What famous architect would you most like to have design a dungeon-slash-dungeon crawl, and what features would it be likely to possess. So the thing about this question, Ken, is do we pick the architect who we feel is responsible for evil buildings? Because <laughs> dungeons, of course, are a place of evil and danger. Or do we uh, pick an architect we like and uh, get its hallways and uh, grand halls and salons and corridors spattered in uh, centipede man blood? Right. I mean, I think to begin with, I'm going to do just a very tiny bit of premise rejection. <laughs> When I say that <laughs> you're, you're rejecting this, the most fanciful of all premises. Yeah. Just a tiny bit, just a tiny bit. When you see the word dungeon, you think of an underground structure. And when you think of an architect and especially when architects think of architect, what they think of is a built structure. So obviously in our modern parlance, a dungeon can be a castle or a palace Obviously, there are examples of underground spaces that are designed, but I just want to keep people a little bit aware of that tension that exists in here, because so much of architecture is about, you know, what kind of load can the walls take and where's the light coming from and all these other things that are relatively irrelevant if what you're doing is digging a series of tunnels underneath a volcano less of an architectural concern, more of an engineering concern. And I would not be my father's son if I did not say engineering with exactly that tone of voice. Right. So, so what we're looking at though, is the aesthetic. Right. Is the, sort of the, the vibe, the visual space and the assumption that maybe the dungeon is actually a structure. And maybe what you've got is something like, you know, the Guggenheim, which is a magnificent internal space. And you just made it under underground. And sure enough, it, it spirals down 
It, it looks like it should be the inside of a, of a, of a, of a shaft going into the earth. And I guess the other thing I want to say about Frank Lloyd Wright is if he's building your dungeon, all the elves are going to bonk their heads all the time because <laughs> if you're uh, over five nine, you're uh, you're not fitting into his dungeon very well. Oh uh, well, that that could be the the biggest torture of all, right? Yeah, I guess right. Frank Lloyd Wright didn't want you to have to fight giants. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's why the giants are so mad is <laughs> they're, they're they're jammed up in that little tiny Frank Lloyd Wright building. So is FLW your choice then? I mean, FLW is less my choice because. One of the things about Wright is that his interiors famously don't have a lot of walls. They're all about flow through and visible space and moving through the space organically, which is the opposite of what you want a dungeon to do. So I love FLW. I think it'd be wonderful. And I feel like if you wanted a, a cloud giant castle, build something like Falling Water that's a series of beautiful boxes perched on a crag. I think that's a lovely place for giants to hang out, assuming that they just, you know, multiplied all the dimensions by 10. But I don't feel like he has the ethereality to make a a proper fantasy environment if we're broadening the topic. And of course, you know, his tunnels are no better than anybody else's tunnels, not to be that guy. Right. So do we continue the suspense and have you give your your pick after I give mine? Let's go ahead and do that. Let's let's have your pick first. So so my pick is Frank Gehry. Ah, yep. Because his interior spaces are super cool looking and they're very varied. So it's not like he does one style of grand hall or one style of staircase and that's it. He, you know, keeps switching it up within an obvious aesthetic that has a lot of, you know, he has these amazing sort of uh, biomorphic lines often with surprising materials. Like, you know, he makes wood do stuff you'd think it wouldn't want to do. Obviously he's got to deal with the ants. We've, we've, (laughs) We figured that out now. And so many of his rooms look very different from one another. So you can just, if you just want to do a Google image search, save a bunch of images and then put them in a, a line to show your players and go, and now you're in this room and you're fighting Cobra people. I think Gary is your way to go. And uh, they're all uh, so interesting and fresh. So you know, why do Le Corbusier, right? Why mm. do some? That's a fair it? question, regardless. But yes, yes. <laughs> certainly. In if your fantasy life is also boxy and dull, then you just move on. Play a different You've game. You've entered another thirty by thirty foot cube, and that's right. The Cobra people are there, and they're very depressed. But you know, the, the Gary stuff—you can just look at the photos, and you can think, okay, yeah, let's position ourselves, and we so we can have a fight on this cool twisty staircase that's wider in some places. And so it's like, oh, well, you can get your flanking bonus in this place, in in this part of the weird uh, curving wooden staircase, Uh, but you don't get it over here and they can maybe put a blockade here or, and then, you know, you can go to the next slide. And it's like, here's this interesting staircase with this weird sort of structure next to it. And you can imagine, you know, amid all of the beauty of, of Frank uh, Gary's spaces, you can say, well, are there little bomblets? Are there arcane sigils over here? Will you uh, start to uh, lose or gain hit points if you move over to this weird sculptural form? Some of the forms look like, oh, yeah, this is the monster. It's going to come out of the wall at you. This Or this is the oracle that you're there to get the information, or dare I say, a boon from after you fight whoever it is that you're fighting in the room. And there are other ones, you know, other grand spaces that uh, they just all uh, look really cool and are also, I think, upend the idea of a grimy, drizzly, 
moss-covered, old, aging dungeon because they're uh, all still new, modern buildings, and they all, all look beautiful and sparkly. And you could even have fun with that as well. It's like there's all sorts of little creatures that come, you know, once you've stabbed the cobra priest and his ichor is all over the wall, then all these little things come out and, and start scrubbing the, the wall. So it's perfect and white, mere moments after you felled the, the scorpion priest. So that could be a fun thing. And of course, you could have the idea that, you know, woe betide you if you start to hack away at that beautiful wooden curving staircase with a sword, something's really going to come after you. And it's a much higher level than the inhabitants who you're normally expected to fight. So Frank Gehry, that's my choice. I love that choice, not least because Frank Gehry's interiors are way better looking than his exteriors, which is not actually the case with my choice. I do want to give a brief shout out because I can imagine that after my uh, premise rejection, that Tim Vert is feeling a little sad and hurt and maybe doesn't want to hear a bunch of crazy postmodernists. But if anyone listening to this has not looked at the etchings of the Italian architect Giovanni Battista Piranesi, he's from the 18th century. He is, I think, to people who have been into this stuff, he is almost a cliche now. But there's, as I've said many, many times, there's no better place for a cliche than in a fantasy game because people like that. That's why they want to go do that is because they want to f- vibe with those yes. cliches. And, and role-playing in general, actually. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with Piranese, then you have nothing but joy ahead of you. But he famously drew literal dungeons. He has a whole book of engravings called Carceri that is just, this is cool dungeons based some of them that I've seen, some that I've made up because yes, it's if, if you want to not do any work to yeah. have your chosen architect have a dungeon, Piranesi is your guy. Is your guy. But I will say that um, I think like you, what I did was get away from the sort of dank corridor, brutalist dungeon and think if I'm a fantasy wizard or an elf king, or even a, a lich who uh, doesn't have to, you know, live in a in a hole. I'm going to have Santiago Calatrava build my fortress because it both looks super impressive. It it has a lot of Calatrava's stuff is institutional. It's airports and big museums and things like that. And so there is a degree of the shrink the individual person down compared to the architecture that I feel your various fantasy bad guys like. But it's also, you know, it, it, it's lots of arches and fluidity and, and movement and giant impressive hallways and things like that. And I feel like, first of all, the amount of tactical fun you can have in a big, slowly curving hallway. I mean, Star Wars, there are whole Star Wars movies by now that are just about how much fun it is to run down a well-lit hallway and shoot at people. So I, I feel like. Uh, there's an awful lot of, of interior vibe you can get out yeah. of. Uh, oh, hopefully the floors are nice and polished and squeaky. Yep, you, yep. Uh, they squeak and, and then you slip on them because yeah. your dungeon boots um, zing under the necromancers. He's got zombies to polish things. They're always super polished. And I, I just I just like it. It hits, I think, in the same way that Gary does for you. I think Calatrava, for me, very much hits what is as fantasy as you can get while still actually being a practical piece of construction you can do on earth. And I, I think I like Calatrava better than I like Gary just as an architect, but I, I feel like both of them have a, a fantasy vocabulary or fantastic vocabulary. That's not the case with architects who I actually like better, like Helmut Jan or somebody. And once I'm on that tangent of thinking 
Where would I not be surprised to see a drow? I feel like a Calatrava is, is that kind of thing. And you could, of course, do what I said about uh, the Guggenheim. You could take any of Calatrava's airport terminals and you just bury them underground. And now they're a, a big, cool drow uh, fortification. And the, the light that comes down is the light of eldritch fungi instead of the light of the sun. But it's still the same sort of human shrinking but optically entrancing vibe. And I feel like anything magic, like a, I think a mind flayer would hang out in a Calatrava and, and be really, really hip with the, with the curves and the right. geometry of it. And that just sort of, uh, again, calls to mind the image of, well, we want a lot of biomorphic forms in this dungeon, but we don't want a bunch of stupid fungi because they're gross. Mm-hmm. So here's this beautifully sculptured uh, lamp with this magical light source that looks like a fungus, but isn't a fungus. And we have Mm -hmm. special creatures to prevent any fungus from growing. And uh, so I guess the question is, you know, who lives in a beautiful dungeon like this? And it could be that this is a, uh, you know, lost city of a fabulous civilization. It's sort of the, you know, Mu or Lemuria as Mm -hmm. a a dungeon that opens up and has been occupied for a little while. Or uh, again, it could be, you know, the, working fortress of a i think uh, gary obviously with all the wood that's elves they made mm-hmm. that yep. whether they control that now or not i don't know but and they're probably kind of snooty you know art history kind of elves but uh they're elves nonetheless they, they, have, they have very long poems but they're in um an internal rhyme scheme yeah i think that a calatrava comparably is something that has some sort of planar quality to it. So, like I said, your mind flares, maybe your necromancer, someone with some some strong magic. Either way, once we've uh, identified the client, if you're a superstar architect, you're done. You found the client. Problem is solved. Let right. the draftsman deal with it. The, the whole issue of dealing with dungeon contractors, completely different topic. Completely different topic. And uh, Robin, as superstar architects of the fantastic, let's let our contractors deal with it and go into another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Give this podcast your boon alongside such other regal Patreon backers as... Sam Rutzik, Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Sean Hoyle. The Molten Sulphur Blog. And Randy Ship. The eerie baying on the moor, the shapes shifting through the jungle, the strange things 
held in a box in a federal basement. All of these things are tangent to, connected to, and tunneling into the Monster Hut. And today, in the Monster Hut, we go to the Andes, and specifically the northern Andes of Colombia and Ecuador, the place where the forest meets human habitation, which is to say, the place monsters have been coming from since umpty-ump thousand B.C., and today we hunt... Or are hunted by... Or are hunted by the Tunda. And uh, the Tunda, Robin, you've actually taken point, as it were, on yes. this tangled threat. So this is a uh, one of your classic shapeshifters, and as her mythology grows... She begins to have other more typical bits of monster mythology affixed to her. So the Tunda is chiefly known by the Afro-Colombians who live in the Choco department, which is a, a part of Colombia that is on the on both coasts. There's a little bit of Atlantic Ocean, a little bit of Pacific Ocean, and you can look at the map to see exactly how that's possible. And the Tunda is a shapeshifter. And uh, as Ken, you, you alluded to, her job is to lure you into the forest. And like any good shapeshifter, she knows enough about you to figure out who you would trust uh, to be lured into the forest. So uh, typically, if you're a child, uh, she might uh, pose as your mom. Or if you are out logging in the forest, she will uh, look uh, like a, a beautiful woman who will then lure you, the libido-starved male foresters uh, deeper into the woods. And there's a version of her that if you're out hunting for mushrooms or something, she causes ever better mushrooms to lead you off of the path and, and get you lost in the forest, and then appears as the person you most want to see when you're lost in the forest. Yes, which is a cool power, the, the mushroomology power. That's, mm -hmm. that's a nifty little one. And once she's got you, she enthralls you. She keeps you in the forest, uh, and she does so by feeding you shrimp. And the state of shrimp enthrallment is known as entundiamento. And when you are enthralled by her shrimp, you are an entundado. And maybe you just want to think about, you know, she just cooks the shrimp normally and that's all fine. But it turns yeah. out that in many versions of this uh, myth <laughs> are somewhat earthy. And yeah. in fact, she cooks the shrimp in her butt. Yeah. They're, they're buttock cooked shrimp because that's how you know she's a monster, right? Yeah. Otherwise, she's just cooking the shrimp. Just, just a lady in the forest with shrimp. That's not right. weird. And so in this version, it is the, the smell of the, the shrimp actually that brings you into this uh, lulled uh, catatonic state. And sometimes it is uh, vulgarized even more. And in fact, the reference to shrimp is just sort of a veil out, an owl, if you <laughs> a will. A code, if you will. <laughs> for a, a sex act that she performs that uh, makes you into diamento. And again, this goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria, where the Ardot Lili, which is a form of the Lilim, according to the tablets, uh, lures you by doing things your wife won't which I guess include cooked shrimp in my case, but it, it might also include other things that as a respectable podcast with, you know, no doubt children listening and uh, clergy, clergymen, first responders, we can't get into any details, but you can do it depending on how your game is rated. Often she overlaps with a vampire and uh, sucks your blood. Or, or just plain eats you. Or just plain eats you. Sure. Why not? Like, again, the, the uh, classic ghoul, the uh, pre-Arabic ghoul or pre-Islamic ghoul, you can tell that she's not who she pretends to be by checking out are all of her feet real? Because one of her feet is in the shape of a molnilio, which is a wooden thing you stir chocolate with. So I guess that's the earlier version of the, of the stir stick from Starbucks. 
But if you've got a, a Tunda out there and she's got a wooden leg, that's not a wooden leg. That's a chocolate stirrer. And now you're in trouble. Uh, shrimp or no shrimp. Right. Which is a great example of a, a myth form traveling around the world because uh, the Afro-Colombians are people who are uh, their ancestors were enslaved and they escaped to the uh, forest and they liberated themselves from their uh, captors. And so, you know, there's a a line going from Sumeria to Africa. The cultural diffusion point uh, is, uh, you know, traceable. It's just over the way, you know, a chocolate stirrer became the, mm-hmm. the wooden leg. So her actual appearance in many of the myths is just as a classic hag, a extremely mm-hmm. horrible, scary-looking uh, female monster. Now, uh, the way that you save an entundado, a person who's been thrimpentrolled, is to take a priest and your friends and family out into the forest and you bang, you make noises, you bang on pots and pans. And that, I guess, you wakes you up from your state of uh, shrimp enthrallment. Yeah. Or at least guilts you into pretending that you haven't been getting it on with the forest hag. And the state of being entundado or in entundamiento state varies depending on the version of the story. Sometimes you're just dreamy and, you know, oh, I have to go back to the forest and get more of that shrimp. And sometimes you're in full-blown sort of Wendigo psychosis. You're foaming at the mouth. You're trying to bite people. You've uh, got basically demonic possession, as you would believe it if you're a Catholic Colombian. And, and, you know, some sort of witch curse would be the African version of it. But that's the way that Ntundamiento presents in some versions. So it can be anything from, you know, a, a very dreamlike condition to a very base physical condition. And I think that's kind of where this whole myth is, is that there's, you know, sort of a, a, a almost a fairy tale quality to it. And then there is a really grotty earthy version of it. And, you know, I, it's hard to say which is the real version because they're both real, but often the, the fancy one starts. And then when you're telling that story to little kids and they're like, so where does she cook the shrimp? And you're like in her butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that could easily have come from one person saying that. There's also a version of the story that uh, singularizes the Tunda into being a specific person, even gives her a name when she was a human. So she's a, you know, a transformed human in this one. And her name is, is Juana. And she's a dutiful, hardworking wife who's uh, beaten and abused by her husband. And she uh, decides to escape. And the uh, godmother of her children, who's a uh, not on her side, tries to stop her from leaving, and uh, she falls and injures her foot, and it's when she injures her foot that it uh, turns into the the peg leg, and then the first person uh, she kidnaps is the son of the woman who tried to stop her, and in this version, she not only cooks the shrimp in in her butt, but she fishes for the shrimp uh, using her her butt, Mm, and this version of the story is clearly being pushed more in the direction of hey kids, behave, or the tunda will get you, which of course is the you know, pan-cultural thing of let's scare kids into not going into the woods by telling them that there's monsters in them. That's, mm-hmm. you know, an extremely common sort of bogey story. There's also a socio-mythic version which says that the Tunda is a reversed enslavement escape, so it's not from the point of view of the of people escaping captivity, but the people who had them in captivity who are now afraid that the people they enslaved will return to wreak vengeance on them. And in both of those stories, that makes the Tunda, a difficult monster to put into a role-playing context because it's like, oh, 
this monster represents a female rage and the oppression of women. Let's go kill her. Yeah. The, 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 the monster represents enslaved people who have escaped. Let's go kill them. Now, now Robin, the patriarchy is, it does have some boons to hand out. I just, <laughs> yeah, it better be a pretty good Pegasus. So yeah. you, I think want to have a, a more magical Tunda if you're, and it, this can be a rescue mission, right? You don't yeah. kill the Tunda in order to get back the person who's, uh, Entundado, although perhaps there will be, you know, uh, some sort of fight. And of course, this is something that can be used. This myth can then be used as the mask for some other sort of either conspiracy, like the Esoterrorists might, you know, kidnap some children. And the idea is that the Tunda is around and that will summon a Tunda, but it's not a, you know, classic Tunda, but it's a creature from the outer dark. So it'd be much more horrible and, you know, something you're not going to feel guilty about reducing to pulp. Yeah, and it, or it could be you hallucinate the Tunda because you're breathing in, you know, dark young of Shubnagurth spores because you're out in the cthulhu part of the Andes jungle and that's who's there. Or I, I think it's a little bit of a hop, skip, and a jump from the Mego, but I feel like if Mego can be abominable snowmen and leprechauns, they can be the Tunda if they really try. And it's just that the Molnilio is the, you know, the, the visual cue that your, your brain is trying to tell you this is not a person. This is a thing, but it's actually, you know, a giant crab monster. And the reason that you keep thinking about shrimp is because your brain keeps telling you it's a crustacean. It's a crustacean. Stop being nice to it. So it would be almost the, uh, the sort of, uh, perception monster or psychic Im- invasion monster in that case, as opposed to the standard witch that lures you into the wood to eat you type monster. And uh, we don't have to work very hard to uh, make the Tunda into a type of vampire since there's already a variant that drinks blood. Exactly. And Night's Black Agents doesn't happen in Colombia, but you could clearly have a Tunda who works for other vampires as a as an operative and has moved to Europe and uh, shape-shifting. What's more useful uh, for spies than, than shape-shifting and uh, you know, she just has to conceal that limp a little, mm-hmm. and she's good to go. She can pose as PCs who are absent that week. She can go in and get information from people by uh, pretending to be whoever they, they most want to be. And, uh, you know, she can use fragrance to uh, disguise that faint uh, smell of shrimp. Or she lives over a shrimp restaurant, and it's like, oh, no, that's just the restaurant smelling like shrimp. But I do have some carryout shrimp, not from my butt. Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's nothing wrong with setting a nice black agents game in Colombia. I mean, Colombia is a classic shadow war type place. You know, the CIA is is all up to its uh, armpits in uh, activities back and forth. Narco terrorists. It's almost the perfect one to one model for vampires is to have uh, vampires in charge of of a narcotics empire or yes, and having all you know a clan of Tunda be your main vampires would be a really great change of pace. And again, shape shifting. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with shapeshifting. So there's lots of possibilities for your, your postmodern monstering. And I suppose um, you could also, you know, lean into the sociomyth or the feminist Tunda if you wanted to have a Tunda who's either a protagonist, if you're playing a, a vampire vampire game, or if you're trying to do a game where the way to break the, the curse, the Tundamiento that's hitting this whole logging uh, community is to undo the big social injustice that caused the Tunda to show up in the first place. You have to, you know, um, uh, break up the landowner who took all the land and enslaved all those people, and their descendants are horrible, I guess not Euro trash, but 
Columbo trash, whatever that is, and they need to be busted up. And then that will actually free them. And when going out into the woods and making noise is just the beginning of the revolution. Let's dispel this monster threat with reparations. (laughs) That's not hard. By blowing up a mansion. Also fun. You know, you can go a lot of different directions. And just because, you know, there's a socially just reason for the Tunda doesn't mean it's not causing a lot of human wreckage in its wake, just like most things that happen as a result of an injustice. (laughs) So seldom is it is a... There was tit, there was tat, we're done. That's not how life works. It's certainly not how monsters work, or the Andes, quite frankly. Well, I think uh, we've gotten enough uh, plot hooks out of the Tunda that we can escape before uh, we become enthralled. And uh, I'm sure we'll escape to a much safer segment without any sort of social injustice or anything horrible about real history. No. Right? Nothing bad could happen in real history, Robin. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Johannes Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, Cam, they've given you an assignment to bust the Popish plot conspiracy hoax of 1678 and then tell them how history changed. Uh, And as typical, uh, you begin this by thumbing through a dossier. Of course, you only have to lightly thumb. You are Ken. You know the details of the history. But our listeners do need to know uh, history as we know it before you begin to uh, tangle it all up. Indeed they do. So the Popish plot is, as you say, a conspiracy hoax. It's not a real conspiracy. It is created by a fellow named Titus Oates, who was a minister, and a fellow named Israel Tonge, who was a crazy person. Together, they wrote a hundred-page manuscript describing a fake Jesuit assassination plot against King Charles II. And Oates, I think, was, you know, uh, doing a lot of the heavy lifting on it, but uh, Tonge is his uh, confederate, mostly because Tonge is staying with a seemingly respectable doctor. And so 
Uh, when Oates hides it in the wall, Tanj discovers it in the wall and says, oh my goodness, I've found a plot. Right. And it's stuck in the wainscoting and it's a hundred pages, mm-hmm. which I've, I've handled a hundred page manuscripts in my time. And I, I shudder to think how they fit it in the wainscoting. None of this story makes any sense. Are you saying this is all made up? Yes, you already did. Yes, right. You said that. So Tanj shows it to a fellow who helps King Charles II with his chemistry hobby, which by the way, that's a little human touch you don't hear about with King Charles II. Normally you're thinking he's off banging actresses and getting to wars with the Dutch, but every now and again, he likes to just, you know, take his shoes off and go down to the chem lab. And so Tanj knows his chemist and shows him the manuscript and says, we need to get this to the king. The chemist, uh, Christopher Kirkby, says, I'll tell him. He goes up to the king, who he can do that with, and he says, I have these, uh, you know, information about assassins that are coming after you. And Charles says, I doubt it. (laughs) You're a chemist. How would you know any of this? And he starts explaining, and and the chemist says, I I can't get into any details because it's not my story. Let me introduce you to my insane friend, Israel Tanj, and he'll set it up. And, And when I was reading about this, it said that Israel Tanj was widely believed to be insane. Was that like after the fact or that just here meet my insane friend is like, what was it? What insanity was he known for before this? His prose style was God awful. I feel like his rap. <laughs> okay. Well, by that standard. Well, his, no, I mean like unhinged rant, God awful, not turgid. His rep was sort of the Alex Jones type, you know, rep. He was the, you know, far out there, big reach conspiracy guy. Okay. And so, I assume that people would say, well, I believe in a Catholic plot against the king, but I'm no Israel Tanj. And then right. you nudge each other in the in the ribs. So the king takes a meeting with Tanj. He says, this doesn't make any sense. You've accused my physician or my, the queen's physician, uh, Sir George Wakeman, of being part of this plot. I don't think any of this is very likely, but I guess you can't chance, you know, an assassination of me. And he sends him off to meet the treasurer. And so the, the treasurer takes a meeting. And Tanj says, oh, I, I found the manuscript, but I don't know who wrote it. And the, the treasurer, again, his job depends on the king staying alive. So everyone starts taking this plot more seriously than King Charles does, because King Charles, he's thought it over. He says, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I was raised by Jesuits. My brother's a Catholic. This is just ridiculous. And so word gets to the, his brother, the Duke of York, who is, as I say, Catholic and also is an idiot. And he says, whoa, we got to investigate. And then he, you know, blows it up at Parliament. Parliament gets all uh, crazy because, again, being anti-Catholic is good politics. And so they're all, you know, more and more doubling down on, on this plot. And Titus Oates gets to talk to the king. And Titus Oates says, oh, I heard about it when I met Don John of Austria. And the king says, oh, I'm good friends with Don John of Austria. Tell me four things about him. And Oates says, oh, is that the time I have to go? So the king, through this whole thing, is very blasé about this alleged assassination plot. But as people start digging into the list of names, sure enough, one or two of them have weird things about them. Like one of the people that was denounced turns out to actually have been in kind of treasonous correspondence with France. And the judge, who basically interviews Oates before he is commissioned by the Privy Council to go arrest Catholics, a judge named Edmund Barry Godfrey, Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey, is murdered 
dramatically and mysteriously. And that sort of puts the cat amongst the pigeons, because even people who are skeptical of the plot say, well, if the judge investigating it just got murdered, well, that's a thing. And so do we know uh, why he was actually murdered, since presumably <laughs> he wasn't by a fictional conspiracy? We do not, because it is a all-time unsolved crime. There were three random Catholics that were hung for it, because that's the way we roll. John Dixon Carr, greatest of uh, mystery writers, uh, his theory is that he was murdered by uh, the Earl of Pembroke, who was from a long line of psychopaths, <laughs> and uh, that the Earl of Pembroke just didn't like the judge because he prosecuted him for a whole different murder. Right. And we know it wasn't because a time machine landed on him, because this is our timeline, not the one you're going to mess with. Exactly. And also because I got nothing against Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey. I think he's a fine guy. Well, I don't think you land the time machine on people on purpose. No, no, I'm not. I'm not Dorothy Gale, for God's sake. In fact, I'm saying you didn't land the time machine. I don't know why people are taking my you didn't land the time machine on someone as indication that you land your time machine. My, my I didn't land the time machine on you on purpose t-shirt is yeah. raising a lot of questions. Um, so anyway, the murder of, of Edmund Barry Godfrey, the discovery that Edwin Coleman is in fact in treasonous communication with France. Which frankly, if you just write a cheese order, by the end of your cheese order, half the time you're in treasonous communication with France. Yeah, because you're saying, boy, it'll be better when the Catholics run this place. Uh, we can get some decent cheese. And that gets Oates his warrant to basically start running out and arresting a bunch of people. And indeed he does. Parliament is summoned. Parliament impeaches five Catholic lords who are named by Oates as he starts adding names to the list in fine McCarthyite style. And then so Parliament gets all uh, head up and they begin saying, well, maybe we should exclude James from the throne since he's Catholic at all. And James, no doubt at this point, regrets having ever backed the Titus Oates, but too late. So there's a, a great deal you of... You should have looked at that whole being Catholic thing before yeah. they lied with an anti-Catholic crusader. It's just all, there's just always something. Like I say, James II was a dimwit, even for an English royal. I mean, just alpha-level dimwit. So the, 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 the Catholic wards are arrested. They're thrown in the Tower of London. There's a long series of trials. They are, you know, demanding trial, you know, by the House of Lords. They say you can't have a Protestant a preacher. No Protestant bishops can try us. That's a big thing. And that, that leads to a lot of uh, brouhaha. And Oates is still coming up with new things. And he shows up to Charles and he says, also, the queen is part of the conspiracy. And the king says, all right. You're under arrest. Get out of here. And Parliament demands that Oates be released to continue prosecuting people. Uh, the king, basically to prevent Catholics from being murdered by mobs, orders them all to leave London. And I, I assume the rich ones did. Uh, the poor ones just hid in the standard way of things. And so it turns into a giant deal. 22 people are executed by Oates and his team. The last one being the Archbishop of Armagh, if you're asking. And then... At some point, people start thinking this has gone too far. As I mentioned, James has early on regretted his early involvement. Uh, George Wakeman, the physician, he was acquitted. He demanded a trial and was acquitted in 1679, which was a big deal. And then ever more juries as they're saying, well, this guy's a Jesuit, but he's a little old harmless Jesuit. He just sits there and he, you know, teaches Latin in the school. We don't want to execute him. We're finding him innocent. And so a lot of jury nullification starts happening and Oates is finally, the thing burns itself out in 1681. He's dismissed from Whitehall. Charles throws him out on his butt. Parliament is over their fever and the, the Popish plot 
to all intents and purposes, is done roiling things. And then, of course, in 1685, James II becomes king and says, oh, Titus Oates, you're on trial for perjury. <laughs> remember remember the first time we, where we said that kings meet out justice? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so perjury, sadly, was not a capital offense. So he just sensed him to be beaten a lot and run back and forth through London after being beaten in an attempt to accidentally murder him by, by the sentence for perjury. That didn't quite happen. And there's a, I don't know if it's a happy ending, but it's a different ending. Uh, William and Mary, when they overthrow James II, of course, they pardon everybody that James II threw in prison, including Titus Oates. So he lives in obscurity on a government pension, which is, you know, more than most people get, even, you know, especially in 1680-something. But his impact on the universe pretty much evanesces by 1681 when King Charles says, enough of this nonsense, no one's trying to kill me, stop being stupid, and just ends it. And, and one of the uh, cultural artifacts that you may wind up erasing when we get to the time machine part of this segment <laughs> is a we may comic never strip, get to. also available in a card deck form, by a cartoonist named Francis Barlow, which is one of the many things to which the invention of the comic strip word balloon is attributed. The word balloon is one of those things that keeps being invented and forgotten and invented and forgotten. And uh, But it may be the first English language uh, word balloon. Don't quote me on that. But it's called A True Narrative of the Horrid Hellish Popish Plot. And you can uh, dial that up on the internet. You can find a scanned version and you can... Uh, look at each exciting card, and uh, I think some enterprising person might want to turn that into a story game, but Ken, that will be weird, because you're about to erase this event from the timeline, or rather, you're going to make it all better with a, yeah. a big time machine bandage. Or try to. The trouble, or the, I mean, it's easy enough to erase it from the timeline. You just get the manuscript after Titus Oates hides it, you burn it. <laughs> then, oh, no manuscript. Yeah, but they wrote the manuscript so they could just write another one. And I can keep burning it. I mean, I I got nothing better to do. I can hang out. I mean, it, here's where I take it personal, Robin. One of the people that's accused of being part of the plot is our boy Samuel Pepys. And I won't have his good name traduced by anyone except his own diary. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, again, it, it's just King Charles is already dubious. I, I feel like, you know, better time travelers than me have foundered on the rock of trying to explain things in words of one syllable to King James II. But at some point, you do have to make him understand that <laughs> gigantic anti-Catholic sentiment is bad for him, England's most prominent Catholic. And you'd, you'd think that him not being involved, the king already hating it, you, you should be able to get to the treasurer. So what is James's drink of choice, as you're telling him this? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure James is, is, is a sack guy or a hawk guy. I, I can't believe that James is a hard alcohol boy. This is before gin, of course, has come to England uh, with the aforementioned William and Mary, God uh, save the queen. But, you know, I, I feel like out drinking a Stuart is an advanced <laughs> level, but I feel well, like... this is why they send you and not me, Ken. <laughs> keeping your head longer than James II, on the other hand, is dirt simple. So, so undoing the plot is relatively simple, but the trouble is that it's just, you know, the scum on the wave of history, as Mrs. Lindbergh said of fascism. The plot is just a symptom of the generalized anti-Catholic prejudice that is gigantic in England in the 17th century for the relatively good reason that they've gone through a series of civil wars over religion, and that, yes, the world's leading Catholic power did try to extirpate England over and over and over again, and hadn't quite given it up even. 
I mean, the situation is what it is. Maybe you don't get the second test act if you remove the Popish plot, because that was a creation of the hysteria. But the test act, the second test act only barred Catholics from being members of the House of Lords. Catholics had already been barred from Parliament. They'd been barred from university positions by the first test act, uh, which, by the way, meant that you had to take Anglican communion and swear an oath that you didn't believe in transubstantiation. So I guess if, if a Presbyterian could stomach taking Anglican communion, they could take that oath all day. But it was intended to bar everyone but Anglicans, and it certainly was intended to bar Catholics. But the Second Test Act is the only actual piece of sort of political change that comes out of this, because as we've mentioned previously, the death of Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey is a coincidence. And, you know, James II weathers it, Charles II weathers it. Again, the only people who really suffer are the 22-odd people who get executed and the maybe 15 to 20 people, many of whom are lords and archbishops, so I have a hard time feeling super sympathy for them, who are clapped into the Tower of London or held otherwise endurance vile until uh, all of this blows over. So it's it's not an event that has a huge downhill effect, barring a fun set of playing cards. And, and so taking it out doesn't end anti-Catholic prejudice in England. You probably still have the Gordon riots in 1780. You probably still have the situation where Parnell is unable to take part in Parliament because he's a Catholic. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, downhill stuff that's right. still... You're not going to drink a religious prejudice under the table. You cannot do that, or you can't do it you know, 150 years after the relevant religious controversy has begun. I feel like you could you know, drink Francis I into becoming a Calvinist, if that's what you wanted to do. But I don't know that you could... <laughs> Look, drink. if you could get people to be Calvinists by drinking, there'd be a lot more Calvinists. That's literally how Scotland works, Robin. <laughs> I don't even know what you're thinking of. No, no, um, it's it's the hangovers that make you Calvinist, <laughs> not the drinking. It's a process. It's a process. <laughs> it's a process. So the the situation with the, with the Popish plot, you know, you, you can take out Titus Oates, you can take out Israel Tanj, would there be another ridiculous controversy even that, that bubbles up? It depends, I guess, if you believe that these sorts of things are necessary release valves for social tension, and that if it isn't one thing, it's another. That if we don't have this moral panic, we'd have another moral panic. And given that it's the 17th century, it's going to be about Catholics, because post-gunpowder plot, that's got some salience. People right. buy that. And, and in general, fear and loathing against a minority group is always something that an ambitious climber or grifter right. can take advantage of. And, and again, if, if Charles II and James II can't undo the prejudice against Catholics, nothing is going to... Well, James II, admittedly, it's fair, but Charles II, the, the Merry Monarch, people love Charles II, but they're like, well, he's Catholic, but we still like him. It's not, oh, thank goodness, now we can stop hating Catholics. Right. So if, if you stay, if you save Godfrey from getting murdered, maybe there's some amazing thing that he goes on to do, or or if you catch the Earl of Pembroke, maybe there's some terrible thing that you prevent him from doing. <laughs> I, I feel like you know Edmund Barry Godfrey probably just continues to to run uh, his court. You know he's tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. I guess I kind of don't want to make that John Dixon Carr book go away though. That's a really good one. So I feel like that's a tough choice because the Earl of Pembroke was a horrible, horrible human being. You, you love to see him get his comeuppance. I used him as a bad guy in my uh, uh, Unknown Armies game, in fact. He's so evil. The one that it was set in 1666. But I feel like the thing to do is get him hung by Edmund Barry Godfrey on that murder rap, and then then we'll see if Edmund Barry Godfrey still winds up dead on Primrose Hill. And if he does, 
then, well, I'll owe the Earl of Pembroke a Coke in hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did a bunch of other stuff, which yeah. I guess is a thing cops say, isn't it? Yep. So, a, a lightly altered timeline uh, this time around, but hopefully people know a bit more about the Popish plot uh, conspiracy hoax. And next week, if you all tune in, you'll hear a lot more about, I'm guessing, four other things. Yeah, who can say? Circa four. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in shrimps, the non-hypnotic kind, please, alongside such beguiling backers as... Ryan Lassiter. Tenant Reed. Yadge from Edinburgh. Darren Hennessy. And Matt Farr. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrols of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.